This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. You shouldn't be able to do what you said, look through a forest and don't see anything. one of his papers in the discussion. This was from Ecology and Evolution, November 2019, titled Red Oak Seedlings as Indicators of Deer Browse Pressure, Gauging the Outcome of Different White-Tailed Deer Management Approaches. This is a paper he authored with Paul D. Curtis, Jason Boulanger, and Andrea Davalos. We also talked about how predators impact prey species populations, and though we didn't mention the specific paper, you might want to dive deeper into the discussion with another of Dr. Blasi's papers, Myths, Wishful Thinking, and Accountability in Predator Conservation and Management in the United States, which came out in Frontiers and Conservation Science in June of this year. Last thing, I forgot to remind everybody to buy my book, Exploring Philly Nature, A Guide for All Four Seasons, which you can get straight from Temple University Press from all the usual online booksellers and local bookshops in the Philly area. Now, on with the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Uh, We got one of the two co-hosts here today, Billy Brown. Um, Tony is on the road and unable to make it. Uh, And we're going to dive into a topic that we've touched on a bit uh, in some other past episodes um, that we've done about hunting in in urban settings, looking actually mostly at, at the Philadelphia area where we're based. Uh, and some of that has been talking to hunters and sort of exploring what uh, what is, you know, maybe the oldest way that humans connect to nature and how that happens in a city. Uh, and then some of it, the discussion that we've had has also been about, it, and then this is a tricky thing to, to define, so I'm, you can hear my gears turning as I say this, but overpopulation of deer and it, a lot of ways people can talk about what is what is an ideal population level of deer in a place, um, but in terms of its impact, their impact on 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 forests uh, and what we see in Philadelphia and people seeing a lot of settings where you have high densities of of white-tailed deer. Uh, so we've talked about hunting as a as a method for trying to do something about that problem, um, and so I was you know researching stuff like you do, um, looking around online, and I found a paper um, which gets at a lot of this, uh, and it was called um, Red Oak Seedlings as Indicators of Deer Browse Pressure, Gauging the Outcome of Different White-Tailed Deer Management Approaches. Um, and I reached out to the lead author, um, Berent Blasi, uh, and he was generous enough to come on the podcast uh, and talk about what I expect will be a wide range of stuff. <laughs> I have, uh, I'll, I'll start with some basic questions, but uh, you know, it's a conversation we can wander a little bit. Uh, and um, this is also not simple stuff um, as I was, I mean, some of it might be in the sense of um, how do deer affect how trees grow and how many deer might affect that. But so many articles I've read about this and people you talk to um, 
you know, that, that, uh, that this notion of what is like the right amount of, of any animal to have on a landscape um, can, can be like trying to nail jello to the wall sometimes. But this, this paper and, and the research gets at uh, the question of how the deer impact forests. Um, and so that's, that's, we're going to start off with that, that focus, I think, in the conversation. I'll ask Berndt, um, could you introduce yourself? Tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm a professor of the natural resources and the environment at Cornell University. Um, and uh, uh, traditionally, so this is a little long-winded thing, I'm an entomologist by training. Uh, I grew up in northern Germany, came to the U.S. some 30 years ago um, doing control of invasive plant species. I worked on purple loosestrife, a wetland invader. Uh, I uh, helped introduce insects to control the spread and impact of purple loosestrife veered out into looking at introduced plant species in forest situations and then deer forced themselves onto my agenda. So because conservation in eastern forests or through much of the U.S. is basically impossible at current deer abundances. And so I started researching the effects and how deer interact with introduced earthworms or introduced plant species. Um, and all of a sudden it became very, very clear that <clears throat> What others had reported before, we need to do something about deer. So I started doing that. I'm now um, also the chair of the Cornell Deer Management Committee. So how we manage forests at Cornell University. I work with a number of municipalities around uh, the Ithaca area where I'm located in New York State, but also in, in, in other states and trying to help them implement ways of reducing deer impacts. Um, and so that's how I got into that one. I'm still doing invasive plant management and control. Um, I'm the director or the PI on what's called the New York Invasive Species Research Institute that is a link between researchers and people that do invasive species management, particular invasive plant management. So I'm a, an ecologist of many different colors um, looking at, uh, uh, I would call it relationships between humans and their environment, the species, plants, and others, trying to understand how we can reform relationships that overall creates healthier living conditions for everybody involved. So that's my little spiel here. Yeah. Um, it's a great spiel. Uh and so I'll start with the the basic thing, like you know, something you just mentioned in your 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 introduction. Um, what is just for people who haven't really thought about this much? Um, you know, when you talk about the impact of deer on forests, uh, you know, what's your what's sort of the summary? Like, what, why, why is it a problem that there are lots of deer in eastern forests? What does it do to the to the plant growth? I guess in those forests, to narrow it down that way. Well, it's so historically. Let me just reach out a little bit when. Uh, White Europeans first came, they found something that very often was called a paradise that was full of native peoples, uh, full of white-tailed deer, full of other organisms, including deer predators, bears, mountain lions, wolves, everybody was here uh, and made some kind of an existence. And then Europeans transformed the landscape and affected biota in many different ways that uh, we see in the legacy of, right? So mountain lions, wolves were extirpated. Deer were almost extirpated 120 years ago, and then they came under 
increasing protection that was due to market hunting and, and, and other things. So forests were cut down, then they regrew, then we uh, built cities into the developing forests, all these kind of things. Uh, species were introduced. Uh, and so we have a completely transformed landscape over the last uh, three, four, five hundred years, introduced industrial agriculture. Uh, all these things happen uh, almost simultaneously. Deer, once they came under protection, were no longer uh, hunted for markets. They did what deer do. Um, you know, those uh, producing two fawns eat what they can. Um, uh, and so they expanded their populations. Um, then we have climate change in addition to that. So the hard winters that uh, maybe you remember, uh, I don't know. I do remember hard winters in the 60s. As I, um, as I, as I say, I, I grew up in, in the Columbus, Ohio area in the 80s. Okay. And we used to have to, to we'd have snow days. We'd also have wind chill days when yeah. the wind chill would get, I think it was below, I don't know what it was, below freezing or below some degrees below, below freezing, which is an unimaginably low temperature right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and so have what we have like seen, yeah. yeah, what we have seen throughout the U.S. and, and, and worldwide is a changing climate, largely a warming. Uh, and one of the big killers of deer populations or of, of other ungulates, whether that's elk or reindeer, other other or caribou, uh, is strong winters where you have snow cover, low temperatures for very extended periods of time. That's a massive killer. Um, and so that doesn't happen anymore. So you have this confluence of many different factors, subsidies that agriculture provides, subsidies that gardens are providing, um, reforestation, people replant their gardens, no predators, all of these things play a role. Um, and deer were just building uh, large populations that found our suburban areas or increasing urban areas, areas very amenable um, and they can live long lives if they can avoid cars, right? So that's basically uh, the situation that we are facing. So they're building huge populations um, and the, uh, the hungry mouths that we have running around um, are making life difficult for many other biota. That's not just the plants that they're eating, but uh, through work that I have done or my team has done and many other people, we see not only the impacts on plants uh, and the ones that are that are being eaten, but also deer favor uh, introduced species, including earthworms, including lots of other plants that may be undesirable. They have problems for amphibians, problems for birds, problems for other mammals. Lyme disease, road safety, economic impacts. So it's just something that has um, been really, really difficult to comprehend how strong of an effect they're actually having on our forest ecosystems. And most of the time, that's um, it's underappreciated or unknown in many instances. I was surprised how little was really known about the strong effects deer have uh, because. People were not making these connections between deer and introduced plants or introduced earthworms or birds or mammal communities. Um, that has been largely understudied because people in science and in ecology tend to work in isolation, right? So there are folks that study plants, there are folks that study wildlife, which is largely vertebrates, there are folks that study birds and there are folks that study insects. And that limits the ability to make these connections between all the interacting uh, factors that are there. And so that's kind of where I live as a scientist and as a researcher. So um, 
I never thought there would be like a silver bullet for affecting conservation or well-being. Deer seem to be the key mechanism uh, in eastern forests and way beyond the northeast um, that drive all these relationships. Um, and at the current abundances, it's detrimental. So uh, deer eating other species out of house and home that no longer have uh, uh, have the ability to thrive in the landscape that are having high deer populations. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I'll, listeners might also be aware of parks near where they live. In Philly, there are plenty of these. I'm sure there are in other urban areas mm-hmm. also where, um, you know, you present two pictures you might see while you're out hiking in, in a wooded park. And one might be um, the an, an amazing, what, what to me is an impressively clear view you get from about breast to four feet or so down to the ground level where there's not much vegetation. Um, and then you might have an understory, which has a lot of species that aren't from here, you know, like lesser celandine, which is like a little buttercup or garlic mustard and stuff like that. Um, and uh, that's one of the, th- the ways you see the deer browsing pressure at work. Um, uh, and then compare that if you're in a park, this is what I started thinking about initially, is that might have deer exclosures put up. Um, and we have several of those in, in Philly parks, um, where as a, and some of them I think are somewhat experimental in, in terms of how they're, they're being used by the Philadelphia park system. Um, but the idea is that if you keep deer out, then you see the, the veg, you'll, you'll see a difference perhaps in the vegetation inside versus outside of the deer exclosures. So it's something to, if you're out there and you're going on a hike this weekend, um, and you want to get a sort of very material, uh, impression of what we're talking about. That's one way to do it. Um, so, uh, I let guess me comment. Can I, can I comment on some of those? Please do. Yeah. There's, there, there's a couple of, um, important considerations. So one thing is you shouldn't be able to do what you said, look through a forest <laughs> and don't see anything. And your view is basically impeded, right? So you can look from Philadelphia almost away to Boston <laughs> if you were able to see that that far yeah. with the deer impacts. So the deer uh, will crop vegetation down. And so that creates your clear view in Eastern forests. That should not happen. There should be all kinds of uh, species that are intermediate, not just the top trees and the uh, vegetation, whatever it is on on the ground. Um, so that that's one thing we call it a like a browse line. It goes as high as the deer can stand on their hind legs because that's what they're doing uh, t- to do that. And I want to comment on the deer exclosures because it's a little tricky. So if you were to say, "Hey, we have a park. Deer are too high in abundance. I want to protect that, so I'm building a fence." And for the first three, four or five, maybe even 10 years, you would not necessarily see a difference if you don't do restoration, if that fence is uh, in an established forest. And then you could conclude, hey, the deer didn't do anything, right? Because inside and outside basically look the same. These deer exclosures also need to be larger than the typical ones that I see. In part, that's explained because deer have sorted out the plant communities to the ones that can exist with high deer abundances, right? That could be introduced species or really small ones that don't grow very tall where the deer would uh, eat them or unpalatable ones. We made those same uh, observation uh, when we started doing all this at West Point at the military academy. We put our fences up and said, wow, you know, nothing happens unless we plant something on the inside 
individuals that are on the inside may be growing, but it takes an enormous amount of time uh, if you don't cut the forest. So if you were to put deer exclosures up after uh, uh, trees were cut and there is light and, and, and resources, you will see a difference, very dramatic. But if you just put a deer exclosure into an existing forest and say, hey, let's study what the impact is of deer, uh, it, you may take, uh, or it may take, take a very long time to realize that. So you shouldn't erroneously then conclude, hey, deer didn't do anything because I don't see a difference after a couple of years inside and outside. So gotcha. there, 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 there's, a, there's a problem with that. But otherwise, the best place to see what it would look like if you do not have deer is go to Central Park uh, in New York City. Well, that's all planted, but there are no deer, right? So when we looked at places to study that would have no deer, all of a sudden we were going to inner large cities where there may be parks where there are no deer. I don't know the situation in Philadelphia where you have places in the inner city where there are no deer. So you're shaking your head. Uh, Everywhere we've got a park that is not intensively landscaped, we've got tons of deer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's the same, you know, Manhattan is an island, but they're coming in from the north through the Bronx. And so Central Park does not have any deer, does not have Lyme disease, does not have any ticks. Um, and so occasionally one lands on a bird or something else because they're being dispersed, but they have all their rodents, you know, rats and mice in New York City are not unheard of. <laughs> <laughs> and so that does exist, but there's no Lyme disease in in, in, in New York City, in, huh. in, in Manhattan. That's one of the few places where you could see what it would look like if you don't have deer and you have this mixed understory. There's all kinds of other factors, right? Uh, foraging of humans, uh, humans all over the place in, in Central Park. So there's an impact with that. Um, but it's one of those islands in uh, uh, where, where everywhere else you have super high deer numbers and so it has been really really difficult for us as researchers to find places that we could go to and assess what it would be like if there are not these uh, large numbers of deer and it has been basically impossible uh you know we can't go to canada and study it in the boreal forest because there's <laughs> no deer there but that's way far north it's no longer the same ecosystems that no, we no, no. <laughs> so it has it, it it has been very challenging in that way um, yeah. to find places to say hey here, here's a good place for comparison right because deer have, uh, have colonized all the places. Huh. So the, so now we've, I think we've, we've established why one might want to, re, one might want to see what would happen if you had fewer deer and it's then, and what that would mean for the forest. Um, so then you get to the question of what do you do about it? Um, and uh, I'll throw a couple things at you that, that, that given what your research might be like softballs, but are things that come up a lot. Um, and the, the, the two first things I hear when I'm talking to somebody about this, um, one is who, who, who is who, someone who um, isn't in love with the idea of killing deer, which is a lot of people. Um, and one idea might be, hey, natural predators should handle this, not humans. And then the other thing you hear is, well, what about birth control? Um, and so um, the uh, and you've experienced studying both of these. Um, and so I, I'll, I'll toss them at you. So why not? Why, why do humans have to get involved in some way with with controlling deer populations lethally? Do you have any idea how many deer there are in Philadelphia? <laughs> does, does anybody have any um, any inkling? Did, did somebody throw out a number? 
Do you, do you I, I don't that? have it handy. I mean, the, the, our park system has, uh, they'll put out reports about the calling efforts. Um, yeah. And in there, they refer to the, the density per square mile. Um, but it's, it's certainly well above, let's say, 10 per square mile, which is, I see sometimes the rule of thumb for a target for deer management. Yeah, that, but, um, yeah. so, so we have we're talking areas in, around in, here. Like 100 plus 100. per square mile. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, um, so let me address the first one about predators, right? So let's just assume um, that we would welcome mountain lions or cougars and wolves and bears in our midst. Uh, as, I would, uh, but I don't know about everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> that, That's right. So when we have just completed a survey and we're in the process of publishing that, whether wolves and mountain lions would be welcome in your neighborhood. So not asking New York residents whether it's okay to release wolves in the Adirondacks and the people in the Adirondacks deal with them. We ask them specifically, would wolves and mountain lions yep. be welcome in your neighborhood? So not in somebody else's neighborhood, your neighborhood. The acceptance is around 30%. You know? <laughs> so not many, not many people want them. And so um, you can kind of you know, know, know a little bit about that. So the second thing is um, a wolf typically uh, eats about 20 deer a year. Uh, so you can kind of anticipate if a wolf needs the eats 20 deer and you have 100 deer per square mile, that means you need at least five wolves per square mile to do that. Um, so because they need to, you know, mostly to kill the old and the young, um, and there are areas where you have many more than a hundred per square mile. That's where we had areas here that were 120, 140. So let's say, you know, three to five wolves per square mile. That's a heck of a lot of wolves that would be roaming through Philadelphia. Uh, again, it would be to, to, to make a difference. So what we see uh, in forest situation and others, and we've worked uh, worked through that, the number of wolves that we would need on the landscape at present deer abundances, even if you have uh, mountain lions and bears on top of that, uh, you would never be able to do that because they are territorial, they're defending areas, uh, territories maybe a hundred square miles. So that's what, just a thousand deer or something like that. Um, uh, so uh, even if they would be able to navigate urban landscape or suburban landscapes and would be welcome in those, in those neighborhoods, which is all questionable right now, right? So there's no hope for the typical predators that you would have to be able to reduce deer numbers effectively to a level where it's way below 10 per square mile, where then other organisms, forests could recover and flourish in there. So there's, there's very little hope that introducing or allowing predators to recolonize areas, that that would result in a reduced impact by the deer. Now, I'm still in favor of, like you, right? I would welcome. Uh, Just because. Uh, yeah, deer, yeah, deer uh, control predators in my landscape. I'm much more rural probably than you are um here so i would love to look out of my window and see a pack of wolf cruise through our area um that's me i'm one of the 20 or 30 percent of people that would welcome <laughs> them in the neighborhood but that's more for like general conservation purposes that have other functions other than just reducing deer so that's the that's the first thing so no hope for predators to solve the dilemma that we have created as humans 
So next thing then is uh, birth control. So for me personally, I feel that's a violation of a wild animal. We do spaying and neutering of our domestic, uh, of our pets, of our livestock or other things, right? Um, whether that's appropriate or not, I leave it up to the people that are doing it. Uh, for a wild organism, you going in and doing sterilization or birth control, uh, for me, it's a violation of the free will of the organisms that are running around. Uh, that's one. It's an ethical and moral thing that I have. Second one, it doesn't work. So because what you do, uh, so the, all the people that are promoting this, I understand, yes, you do not want to kill uh, an organism that's charismatic and is beautiful uh, and is part of the North American landscape. Yes, it should be. Um, so, and the deer didn't play a role in that. It was, was all us doing that. Yes, you can prevent uh, those from becoming pregnant. Uh, that can be either by capturing them, you using ovariectomies, because tubal ligation, they sometimes regrow their tubes. We have, we have seen that. So that's not effective uh, in that sense. So that means surgery. That's hundreds of dollars with, uh, uh, with the deer coming uh, <laughs> into a mobile or uh, uh, like a real uh, uh, ICU, right? Um, and then you remove the ovariectomies and then you release them back out into, into the wild. Uh, so by not becoming pregnant, by not raising fawns, deer live for very extended periods of time because those listeners that raise kids will know how much that means in terms of resource expenditure and energy expenditure that you have. So the deer that do not raise offspring live longer. So we have that here. They can live 15, 16, 17 years crossing major highways on twice every day. So they're continuing to eat. And what we would like to prevent is them having an impact on the landscape. So there, while sterilization, the pill, you can't administer that. You would need to give it to the does on a, uh, on a frequent basis. That doesn't work because you don't know which doe is what, and you get them once, and then you will never get them again with a dart rifle or under no, a net. they smart and, that right. way. Yeah. They're very, very, very smart. They immediately respond to that. So you will not be able to recapture them. So, uh, yes, you can prevent that those are giving birth, but by doing that, you are not affecting the population. Uh, what people hope for is that over time they would shrink, but it may take 20, 30, 40 years of continued devastation in our forest. For me, that's unacceptable. And the mortality that you have, while I understand that individuals may be opposed to killing uh, um, uh, a deer, you leave it to the cars. That's yeah. devastating for the deer, right? That's not a quick death. The ones that you see lying at the side of the road, they basically had it good because they died instantaneously. Right. What we know from the deer that we have uh, collared here, and when we find them, they're crawling, they're living for days uh, in agony until they die a slow death or being taken down by coyotes or uh, whatever you have. I don't think that that's anything that anybody should favor that we are leading yeah. the killing to the cars. It's not going to work. And then I'll, I'll chime in with one little thing, um, which is something that I read once in a, a, a historian of, of fire ecology, I guess, or fire, Stephen Pine, um, who had a, a great point where he said, we should consider humans to be natural predators as well, in the sense that for the since the last ice age, um, humans have been 
one of the primary predators of of deer in North America. Um, and so it's a that's a whole we could get a whole I'm sure long range of conversation about what what is how, what is the role of humans and what is natural, but but we, we've been we're part of the picture for a long time. That's right. We're part of nature. We're part of the consumers of deer. We're part of the consumers of uh, plants and, and 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 other animals. And so we cannot live outside nature. We affected nature, right? And so I, I sometimes hear the argument: let nature take care of itself, right? So well. In part, we're part of nature, so that's fine. Free-range venison is one of the most uh, delicious things that you can eat for those of you uh, that will uh, eat animal protein or some vegetarians that would not. That's fine. That's a that's a personal choice. Um, and so the deer are made to live uh, uh, and, and be able to deal with predation. That's just fine. We are part of that. It's our responsibility. We messed it up. Um, and so... Um, uh, if we say leave it to nature and we take ourselves out of the picture, we may not like the nature that we're getting <laughs> with denuded woods where it's just shrublands and introduced yeah. species, right? I think we have a responsibility also for the native species that are now uh, threatened by high deer numbers, right? Uh, again, the responsibility is with us, but we have uh, some ethical and moral responsibilities to protect them from being eaten out of house and home. Right. Um, so whether that's the birds, whether it's the amphibians, whether it's other plants, they have a right to exist. And if the deer, through no fault of their own, are so abundant that they eliminate living spaces for native organisms, I think it's our moral obligation to do something about it. All right. So now I'm going to throw another question at you that I hear a lot in this discussion from, let's say, the folks who are hunters, which is, well, let us take care of it. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, whether it's the, you know, it's, and I have, um, now I, through, through this and through various other friends, I have friends who are, who are urban um, bow hunters in Philly, because you can't really shoot firearms in Philadelphia. Um, and so the, you, you know, when you, well, especially if you listen to a lot of the, um, the popular media that's part of the hunting world. Um, the idea is okay. Well, then, then let's let's hunt them more, and that should take care of it. And so I think this is one of the things that drew me to the to your research was you testing that. Um, and so talk a little bit about the limitations of of sort of rec. You know, what I think of as the recreational hunter being able to play a role in in taking care of the deer populations. Yeah, I wish that would be the case that you could just deploy hunters and uh, particular bow hunters in uh, uh, in suburbia and they could take care of the problem. Um, I'm a bow hunter by heart, uh, so that's how I got into it. I never wanted to get part of my, but um, so that's, that's a passion of mine. So I, I understand that, uh, but the, the important uh, question then is if you allow uh, responsible, safe bow hunting in the parks and places, uh, uh, Philadelphia or any other place, would the removal um, by hunters result in so much deer mortality um, that you would make a difference in the well-being of the forest that you would like to protect? And the answer to that is no. Um, and uh, unfortunately, is no. And we try to do this here at Cornell. We try to do it in a number of different communities where I have helped uh, implement suburban uh, uh, deer hunting approaches, where we did uh, initially just allow recreational hunting and hoping that 
there would be uh, there would be a, a difference that we could uh, and not just assume that but also measure it um, and so that's how you got into the the paper that you quoted at the, quoted at the beginning um, and we even did a combination with sterilization and others and it just turned out not to not to result in the outcome that we desired so make no mistake hunters will take a whole bunch of deer but never enough uh, and part, uh, there, there are many reasons for that. One is it's a very short season, typically. Uh, even you, if you were to extend the season, hunters are not going out, uh, or the vast majority of them are not going out and shooting deer after deer after deer after deer, even if you were to allow that to happen by additional issuing additional tags or something like that. They stop uh, typically, you know, short of two deer, and one for their own freezer, and then they hand out to some of the friends. There are some individuals that are doing more because to see, hey, there's there, there's a reason why we're doing this here. So they may be shooting uh, a few more, and there are some very de dedicated folks that maybe kill a few dozen a year. Um, um, those are very far and in between. Uh, so the numbers just don't add up. And then there's deer education that comes into a mix. You would think that suburban deer are easy to kill because you can walk up to them. They may come up to you. Um, listeners that live in suburban environments, they're basically tame. But you will see they know whether a dog is within a virtual fence or on leash, they know how far they can go. Uh, deer here in our neighborhoods look left and right before they cross the street. Um, uh, and so they have adapted very smartly to the environments that we provide for them. Once you start pressuring with hunting or you capture them once to uh, mark them or administer birth control or whatever you do, forget getting your hands on them again. They become educated very, very quickly. So, um, so cheekishly, I say the dumb ones are in the freezer very quickly. And then you <laughs> deal with all the smart and educated ones because they see what is happening, right? They're moving in family groups or others. Uh, individuals out of those groups are being killed. Um, uh, and so they adapt their behavior and they become nocturnal. We know it from when the gun hunting season starts, uh, they're becoming entirely nocturnal. It takes multiple weeks for them to uh, trust the environment and the safety again that they venture out during the daylight. There's always a couple of individuals that will, will do that so you can take those. Um, but uh, the majority of the deer are killed on the opening weekend, regardless of where you are, whether you're in New York or whether you're in Pennsylvania, in terms of the, the numbers being killed by, by hunters. So it doesn't work. Hunters do not remove enough from the landscape. Um, even when we, so we've adapted our approach to then say, okay, if they're night active, Maybe we can do night hunting and we draw them in using bait and others. So this is more like a culling operation that you you would have. Um, that does work um, and uh, it gets better, but we can't do that everywhere. Um, and so even with those situations and uh, almost like a five month season where we start in October and end in March, um, we, are, we are not able to remove the, uh, sufficient numbers of individuals to really make a fundamental difference because we cannot do it on a landscape level we do it like in a little municipality a few square miles right you could think about doing it in a park in philadelphia 
But the deer from outside realize, oh, there's fewer individuals in the park. Maybe I go there and then they hang out. So we are suffering, so to speak, from the ability of deer to disperse, occupy new territories, find places where they find better living conditions. And so you get to the effect that it's a donut hole, right? But that donut hole fills up by the the end of annuals from the outside. So you need to do that later. Yeah. yeah, you you guys were taking out basically the the equivalent of the entire adult population annually yeah. to see an impact on the the on how hard they browsed the oak seedlings. Yeah, we could we could do that uh, early on, but we have uh, some um, you know communities around us. Although it gets better, that do not do uh, deer management for the reasons that maybe you have cited. There's they think there's public opposition, although there's once you ask people whether they have uh, the willingness to tolerate increased deer, uh, deer kill for ecological, uh, human health or other reasons, over 70% of people are in support of that. We just redid this survey in, in New York and the, the, an overwhelming majority of in individuals will say, hey, if the other species have a better well-being, wild plants or animals, or we have less uh, suffering by the deer that starve in the winter or something, they will be accepting that. But we hear the loud voices from those folks that are opposed to killing some, they seem to be always uh, uh, winning out. And then, uh, you know, you leave the killing to the cars. And so we are suffering from that effect that there are some municipal leaders that are not willing to um, uh, to go in and stand up for what I believe they should. Um, and I just say, no, we have too much opposition when it's less than uh, 10 or 15% of the people that are doing that. So another direction you that you of criticism in the piece um, that I f- have found interesting because I, just as someone who lives in Pennsylvania, where there's a very strong hunting culture once you get outside of the cities, um, is how the state game agencies manage deer populations. Um, and I see this even in a, I'll, I'll give an example of a friend who has a, a, a cabin in, in a rural county in Northern Pennsylvania, um, where uh, if you looked now at the very beginning it's actually it isn't even open season yet there for for bow hunting there are no more tags available for for does so basically as many people are signing up to hunt as the state will allow to hunt um and if you go to his property which is forested there's tons of deer they're really easy to just observe visually and you look at the forest you have a lot of japanese stilt grass you have a lot of areas that are just hay scented fern um the browse lines we're talking about before clearly there's a ton of deer and so the, but the the state game agencies, in my phrasing of it, if they try to permit m- more take of deer, they hear about it from from hunter advocacy groups um, who are also loud um, in their own way. And so, just talk a little bit about like what you think would need to happen on the state game management level for to see some kind of landscape level decrease in deer densities. Yeah, so Pennsylvania is a little bit of a sore spot. Um, and um, so there have been all these controversy or controversies um, with the introduction of antler size restrictions, right? Uh, I don't know whether you have followed those debates. Gary Alt was basically 
needing police protection because hunters were very upset about not being able to shoot small bucks or the increased focus on taking some does to allow the herd to recover and the vegetation to recover. It's uh, it's all very, very strange to me um, because uh, people say, oh, we shouldn't shoot more does because then there are fewer deer in the landscape and every little buck that you have will get into a monster buck and then have like 12, 14 points at some point if we just allow them to be old enough. And nobody thinks about the resource base, right? Um, and so over time, the quality of the forests in, in northern Pennsylvania, what we call the southern tier, you may call the northern tier, right? Uh, so um, southern tier is on the New York side. but uh has greatly eroded the capacity of forests to have high to promote high deer abundances has just been browsed to to pittance nothing there the pennsylvania game commission uh choose a few years ago to look at seedling abundance and say well if the seedlings are abundant enough uh, then we can say <clears throat> is is this okay as the deer abundance uh and in, in, in balance with whatever forced regeneration you want to have uh when clearly um uh, and so they only show some areas around you philadelphia other places uh the urban corridor right so uh, where seedling abundance is not high enough clearly all the other work shows it's not the seedlings that are threatened it's the transition from a small seedling that's maybe up to a foot tall to then become a sapling and ultimately become a, a mature tree that's where the deer are sorting it out and so there's lots of work that has been done showing that uh, sapling uh, abundance throughout much of pennsylvania including the rural areas is too low to allow forest regeneration so the game commission caters towards some very loud folks less than 10 percent of pennsylvania's populations are hunters and buy hunting licenses but traditionally that's what the game commission not only in pennsylvania state wildlife agencies across the board have been doing um and so they basically have mismanaged all of pennsylvania to favor the interest of recreational hunters uh, and they have a loud voice so what we try to do with the paper that you initially uh, uh, referenced is trying to change the way that we think about it by being accountable, by actually measuring the right things, reporting the right data, uh, because most people will not know uh, that there are too many deer that are preventing forest regeneration. You and I are interested in the topic, right? You as the hobby, me as a professional professional uh, uh one and but most people particularly in urban areas may say well i have no idea whether there are too many deer or too little deer that's not what i think about on a daily or even weekly basis maybe not even on a monthly basis and hey people have different interests but the management agency should deliver the information that's appropriate for us to assess and whether they're managing in appropriate ways, not just for the 10% or 8% of the populations that are actually hunting. So I'll say a couple of quick things and ask you one last question. Um, something that's occurred to me as I've walked around our forest in the Philadelphia area, and you sort of look at the age of the trees that you're looking at. Um, and it, it, especially look at some that have fallen or been cut down across a trail or something like that, count the rings. What you're, My impression of it is what we're looking at are trees that grew up when there weren't very many whitetails, white-tailed deer around. Um, and then it's, so we ha can, you can get lulled into the sense of, oh, this is a big, healthy forest. We have all these big trees. Um, but those big trees grew up when 
before we had the densities of white-tailed deer that we we have today. Um, so it's just a, a visual way people can go out and get a feel for this. Um, but since we're we're running low on time, I want to just throw one last question at you, um, which is, what would your ideal management regime look like? Um, so if you were the god of deer management in, in eastern <laughs> states, <laughs> what would it be sort of intensive sort of calling operations to keep the population levels low? Like what what would you what would you if you wave your magic wand, what would you want to see? I don't want that job. Um, but that's uh <laughs> that would be my, that would be my first response. But so if I have a dream of how we would manage that, there's a combination of things that would uh, need need to happen, right? One is the establishment of um, of groups of people that come together and say, what would we like in a landscape? Not on a park by park basis, that may be, may be possible as well, but say, what, what is it? And this is what we would like to have. Uh, and what would we need to measure to then say, are we getting to the place that's better? So in some places, you may want to protect orchids. In some places, you want to say, maybe I would like something different. Maybe I want to do agriculture or, 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 or something else. What the size of that area is, I do not know. But we need to agree on, hey, we would like to have some trees that grow up. We would like to have some birds that can make a living here, whatever, whatever the metrics are. We're, we're working on some of that. And then you would do deer management to trying to see whether that works. From everything that I have learned, using recreational hunting, sterilization, predators, it's not going to work. So most likely what we will need to do is create incentives for professionals to go and shoot deer for us. And then measure whether we're making a difference to get towards a healthier forest or ever most likely we will need to introduce market hunting again but regulated market hunting where the individuals that go out can sell that meat uh, either to uh, an approved butcher shop or something of that sort that would need to be developed right but without providing incentives for individuals to go and take more deer and make a profit out of that one, we'll never get to the places where we want to go. There's a model like that, a little bit like that in Switzerland, because people would complain, oh, if you have professionals in there, they shoot all the deer that the recreational hunters would take. I would do the following. I would say, hey, all you recreational hunters, you have first crack at the deer. Go shoot the deer that you want. And then uh, we have some kind of a harvest quota that we say, this is what we need to do based on uh, over time on what, what we see in terms of forest improvement. If you don't get to that harvest quota, then the professionals go out and try to reduce that. You're not going to have uh, you know, willy-nilly people in state parks uh, or in municipal parks running around. That will be highly regulated. I assume that's how parks manage that in Philadelphia. It's not everybody can just go when they want. It's very highly regulated already just to make sure that it's done safe and they may need to pass a test or whatever. So that's done with red deer management in Alpine Forest in Switzerland, where they say, hey, we need to reduce the numbers. You recreational hunters go out there, do whatever you do. But we will, you have to report all of that and we will see how many you took. And then we have the professional hunters go out and reduce the numbers. So that's tolerable. That's probably a system and a way that it needs to be incentivized so that people are actually shooting more deer because it becomes part of their livelihoods, right? So um, that's the ideal scenario. It will differ 
And I never talk about dear numbers because it differs between Philadelphia, Alabama, uh, Saskatchewan, or where we are. Deer have different sizes. Uh, there's different productivity of landscapes, something in the Adirondacks. And you say 10 deer per square mile in the Adirondacks. That's probably twice what is being tolerable because the fertility is low. Winters are long. Climate is different. You go to a drier place or a wetter place, the, the number do not match up. The impact is what we should be concerned about, right? And that's right. what we need to measure. And that's what management agencies are not doing right now. They just assume we allow recreational hunting and everything is hunky-dory, which we know is not. And so they're not rising to the task. And uh, so we need to take the privileges away from the hunters they are part of our community. I'm not going to take recreational hunting away. I wish they would do more. Uh, so let's incentivize that. But uh, they also have a responsibilities. But typically, hunters do not consider themselves managers. That's yeah. their recreation. It's their hobby. And that's just fine. So I've, I, I'm part of that crew. Um, but I also see other significant responsibilities that we have collectively for the yeah. well-being of other organisms. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so we'll wrap up with that. Um, I, uh, well, we have three minutes. I just want to throw something in just to say that we can, we can go a couple of minutes longer. Oh, okay. It's not a problem. I was just going to say that, that for those who are new to the world of hunting, um, what, what Berndt just described is it sounds quite reasonable to my brain. Um, but when you're that there is a almost religious attachment to what people refer to as the North American conservation model, um, yeah. and, and so, uh, I, <laughs> I can see you getting beat up in certain places by making that kind of argument. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, in, it, it is in my own head, it's, it's something to really contemplate is how do we get, um, how do we sort of have this kind of like results based focus? It's going to require a heck of a shift in the imagination of policymakers. And I, I, yeah. I, so I, I sure you've, the, the you've North, sort of brought me on board in a way, but um, yeah, yeah. The North American model of wildlife conservation—that's what the official name is—just a code of conduct, right? It's an agreed upon thing. It's not a law, uh, but all state wildlife agencies would articulate we follow the North American model. Now, if you look at how deer management was created, it was at the time, as you said, where the trees grew up because there were no deer. Deer were introduced to Pennsylvania from Michigan and uh, and, and other places, trying to restock Iowa and Kansas, a paradise for big buck hunters right now, had no deer left uh, in the late 1800s, right? So then deer recolonized from refugia. And so the state wildlife agencies and the mantra uh, that they were following was, we need to protect the herd, we need to grow the herd. Uh, and if hunting is um, or shooting is one of the major threats, by curtailing the number of uh, deer that can be taken, you can protect that. They did that very effectively. They did it very effectively with waterfowl as well. But now we are in a situation where there are so many that you cannot regulate it with hunting anymore. So yeah. that's the same The same for – so hunting, if that's the biggest threat to a population, you regulate hunting, you can allow populations to recover. Great. But the example of snow geese or oh, of – um, yeah. <laughs> 
uh, or of Canada geese, right? Uh, suburban Canada geese. You can no longer regulate them with hunting because there are so few hunters out there and they can shoot. I don't know what's the bag limit for some of them, 25 a day or so. You cannot take enough individuals off the landscape to prevent the t- deterioration uh, for urban Canada geese. You will have that problem in Philadelphia. Snow yeah. geese, the problems are occurring in the Arctic because we feed them so well with leftover corn and grain here in the in the southern U.S. that they can explode in populations up in the Arctic and they have devastating consequences. But you can no longer manage that with hunting. So the organizational structure, the philosophies, everything else with state wildlife agencies created at a time where there was a paucity of uh, uh, or low abundance of the, the species that they were managing. That philosophy now needs to shift to how do you manage something that is so abundant that it creates ecologically negative impacts and negative human health impacts. And they haven't made that switch. Yeah. They don't realize that, right? So something that was cool uh, and appropriate 100 years ago no longer is appropriate when the conditions have changed fundamentally. And it's hard to get that into the heads and hearts. Um, nobody wants to outlaw recreational hunting, as I said before. But the hunters are not doing what we think they should be doing. And so you need to think creatively about how to do that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can always get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com, and you can tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. And of course, If you haven't already purchased Exploring Philly Nature, a guide for all four seasons, please go ahead and do it. You can find it at uh, bookstores around Philadelphia, or you can find it online at all the usual online booksellers or directly from Temple University Press. Thanks again. 